Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well. And this is a great time to be a movie fan because we are in the midst of sort of the second wave of festival season because the can is the big one and Sundance obviously really early in the year. But right now we have Telluride and Venice happening at the exact same time. And then we're about to transition into the Toronto International Film Festival next week and then the New York Film Festival to round out the month. And the initial wave of reviews has been coming in and we have both been pleasantly surprised at how good some of the reviews have been for uh, the movies at these festivals. And sort of like the biggest one is The Joker, which uh, premiered at Venice Film Festival and has had almost overwhelmingly it's positive Joker. reviews. Joker, no, the Joker. <laughs> Just Joker, except for the one really, really bad review, which I saw, I think was from, I can't remember who it was, but Time, and they called the Yakin Phoenix performance like embarrassingly bad. And you have to admire a movie that reaches to those heights and gets uh, a review that negative. So, I mean, does uh, does this change your expectations of the Joker, or does this just uh, just reiterate what you were expecting before the reviews came out? Well, I'm the person that's always poo-pooing all these comic book movies. Oh, it's the death of cinema. But this one looks like a gritty, mean 70s character study that Martin Scorsese or Sidney Lumet would have made uh, back in the day. And I think it's going to be like a Molotov cocktail thrown at the comic book genre. And it's going to be like, it's going to upset people. Uh And I don't understand, um, you know, I, I, I understand that people are having reservations about it because they're saying this is a film that's going to like awake all these incels, but it's going to like, no, there has been like people saying stuff about that, which has been a little bit weird. Yeah, I mean, it looks, I think the trailer looks great, and I'm the person that's always, like, almost always, I have no interest in the comic book films, but this looks like, uh, this looks like Taxi Driver meets the King of Comedy, and it just happens to be the Joker. Uh-huh. And there also is a little bit of the ridiculous of the movie festivals. Uh, did you hear it got an eight-minute standing ovation? Yeah, someone pointed <laughs> out that, you know, there have been a lot of other films that oh, maybe are not the greatest. That... It's just amazing Anytime this happens where I'm just thinking, are they, like, embarrassed to be the first one who sits down? They just want to keep clapping until they see anyone else stop clapping. Right. Well, I, I mean, I am very excited about it, and I tell people that they should go watch The King of Comedy beforehand because it looks like De Niro is mm-hmm. kind of playing the Jerry Lewis character in the you know the way it was in the king of comedy and yeah i'm i i'm going in with an open mind going oh this looks good uh even though uh, i remember seeing someone tweeting once about how like there are numerous times a year a film will come out and critics will go and fans will go oh this is a comic book film for people that aren't fan of comic film though this is actually a serious adult comic book film and then it ends up being like logan and it's like logan's good but it's still just like oh well (laughs) yeah and it's just like you know i know this is pretentious but like you know i remember stephen king once said that he said i write salami I hope it's good salami, but it's still salami. Like, no matter how brilliant and well-acted and well-constructed a comic book film is, it's still a comic book film. 
and you know, it, th- there's no problem with that. But it, to me, the, it's a genre that there's only so high a level it can reach. You know what I'm saying? Mm, oh yeah, totally. And another movie that premiered like, at Venice that is the complete seeming opposite of a comic book film, Marriage Story, which is going to come out on Netflix in early November, has been getting rave reviews, starring Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. This seems like I feel like Scarlett Johansson has only been in really weird movies and then marvel movies in recent years i feel like this is going to be the first movie in a long time we're really going to see her actually use her skills as an actress and it's surprising she's never been nominated for an oscar before and they say that not only is she almost a shoe-in for best actress she could conceivably be nominated for supporting actors for jojo rabbit which she's also in oh wow and yeah She's done a lot. She's done a lot of really interesting films in the last few years, like Under the Skin, and I actually think Lucy. It doesn't entirely work, but I think that's like kind of a daring, original, big budget concept mm-hmm. movie. But yeah, it's Marriage Story has a ninety-five on Metacritic. It's Noah Baumbach, uh, right, written and directed it, partially based on his own life with Jennifer Jason Lee. Mm-hmm. They were married and divorced, and it's uh, it has a great supporting cast. It has Laura Dern, Ray Liotta, Alan Alda, Merritt Weaver. Um, uh, yeah, so I and Noah Baumbach, that it's like very famously his first really big movie, or maybe not his first really big movie, but the first one that got him huge critical love, at least in this century, was The Squid and the Whale, which was based on his parents' divorce, I think. So now he's making one about his own divorce. That's sort of a interesting companion piece right it's interesting i've heard um him say in interviews that you know millions and millions of people around the world are divorced but there are so few films that honestly look at it and and are you know about that you know there's kramer versus kramer Mm -hmm. and there's the brood uh but uh there's the david cronenberg film but yeah i it it seems like divorce is a subject that's very rarely mentioned in Mm -hmm. film as a serious subject but it's supposed to be comedic too uh but they say this is certainly one of his more dramatic films Mm -hmm. uh netflix movie so uh, i can't wait to see it i'm a big fan of noah Bombach. I especially really like his film Greenberg. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, the um one film that if we want to just keep going back and forth between like big opposites, uh, an opposite from that is the sci-fi Yeah, Ad Astra directed by James Gray, who directed films such as Two Lovers, The Immigrant, and mm-hmm. most recently The uh, Lost City of Z. It stars Brad Pitt, uh Donald Sutherland, Tommy Lee Jones, Ruth Nega. And um, it's gotten it has an 81 on Metacritic and most critics say that it's really visually stunning and existential and it's like a sci fi spectacle, but also a very intimate human story. So and I'm a pretty very, big budget on a pretty IMAX. daring director. And I see that they're really starting to make a pretty big push in the advertising for it. So it's one I really hope a lot of people go see because it's a big swing for a studio. So it'd be really upsetting or not upsetting but it'd be very disappointing if it were to really bomb if it makes like 30 million <laughs> yeah like first man yeah which exactly didn't do that well yeah yeah it's coming out like right around the same time and it's like another you know big giant movie star in the lead role with an interesting director and that didn't do too well at the box office mm-hmm. but um 
another one that is uh, well, uh, another one I'm looking forward to is An Officer and a Spy, Roman Polanski's new film about the Dreyfus affair starring Jean Dujardin. It's been a bunch very of like low key actors. in the discussion around it. Maybe that has a lot to do with the uh, the guy who's making it, but for as much talent involved in it, you think that uh, I mean people would be more, making more of a buzz about this sort of movie coming out. The one thing I've heard, it kind of a number of reviewers say that it's impeccably made on you know technical level, the production design and the costumes and the historical recreation. But they say it's almost like so realistic and you know spot on that it's a little dry, like a history huh. lesson. But then I saw Michael Phillips, one of my favorite film critics, say he thinks it's his best film since The Pianist. Uh-huh. And that sounds like Peterloo. That sounds like the exact same criticism you could say about that movie. And that was one of my favorite movies of the year. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. And um, another one that I'm really ex- excited about is Uncut Gems, the new film by the Safdie brothers who did Good Time. And Which one was that? At? Was that at Adam Sandler? I think so. I, I, there, there's so many films coming out. I'm like, which festival is this at? But and some of them are playing at multiple. Mm-hmm. But uh, Uncut Gems is Adam Sandler and what critics are saying, if not his best performance since Punch Drunk Love. Uh, it's They say it might be his best performance yet. And they also say the film is like a nonstop like panic attack, thrill ride. It's just like you need to take drugs to sedate yourself <laughs> before the film or you might have a heart attack. And some interesting casting choices besides Adam Sandler. I know, like, The Weeknd is in it, and I think some more, I think maybe, like, Puff Daddy's in it. Really? (laughs) Well, um, I think that, uh, well, they're a very interesting uh, young pair of directors. I thought Good Time was very effective. Oh, Kevin uh, Garnett, the NBA uh, player. You've probably never even heard of him, but (laughs) a very famous basketball player. And the film was originally going to star Jonah Hill, but um, oh, wow. it stars Adam Sandler. And I, I, I was saying before we started recording that I've heard a critic describe it as Mean Streets meets a serious man uh, because it's like this gritty New York crime film, but it's also like very Jewish and existential. Mm-hmm. So that makes me that combination and the directors. I'm like, oh, I really want to see that. And then a movie that has not premiered yet, but will make its uh, premiere as the opening film of the New York Film Festival later this month. We got news that Martin Scorsese's The Irishman will not be opening uh, in wide release nationwide and will just have an opening in select indie cinemas at the beginning of November and then will stream on Netflix uh, November 27th, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, I know you're obviously probably pretty disappointed to hear this news, (laughs) that even someone living like a decently sized city might not be able to see this in theaters. You might have to be in New York or Los Angeles to see the newest Martin Scorsese movie in theaters, and that's pretty disappointing. I mean, what are your just general thoughts of the movie as it stands right now? We just heard it's going to be three and a half hours long. Are you still expecting a classic Scorsese movie, or like by the day are your expectations diminishing? Well, the the release of the film has no impact on how excited I am. I mean, besides A Hidden Life, Terrence Malick's film, it's the number one film I'm looking forward to this year. So it's not the number two film. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it like if you're not excited for a Martin Scorsese film with Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and Harvey Keitel, like what's wrong with you, right? <laughs> I mean, I I can't wait to see it, and I actually am going to go to the opening weekend of the New York Film Festival. I got a plane ticket. And 
you know, I, it will probably play in Atlanta, which is still mm-hmm. like over two hour drive. Yeah, from we're me, not totally clear absolutely... on which cinemas it's actually going to be in. But that is a really long like, time to... between a premiere and like when it will actually be available to the public. That's almost two months after its debut at the New York Film Festival. What I've heard was the main problem him – well, I'm, I'm not saying it's like they're fighting, but the main disagreement is that uh, a, the, a lot of the chains like Regal, they say that a film has to be in theaters only for 90 days before it can be streaming or on demand. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to – Netflix was trying to get them to have it a, to be a shorter window So because Roma opened in theaters first for a few weeks and then it went to streaming. So that was an instance where they actually didn't have it right away streaming. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, I just I the last single screen theater in New York City closed recently. And I just think I mean, I think we're going to get to the point where there are only multiplexes showing the big budget comic book movies and franchises and animated films and family movies and everything else is going to go to streaming and I think it's even going to get to the point where it's like what is film what is television is twin peaks a television show or a film are people just going to make six hour films and they're going straight to netflix i just you know i want to see a scores i want to see a three and a half hour scorsese film in the theater on a big screen and i will because i'm gonna i have the means to fly to new york to see it at the opening weekend but i that that movie and the new coen brothers movie and the best reviewed film of last year roma that should be playing everywhere at least for a few weeks in Mm. my opinion now, this movie, like, brings up a lot of the big issues with the streaming versus, like, in theaters experience for this. Because, like you said, this, like, for a lot of people might be, like, a TV show. I doubt most people who consume the movie are going to watch it entirely in one sitting. It might be, like, two or three. And you can understand Netflix's side with not wanting people to see it in theaters, considering they've spent, like, almost $200 million on it. And they're releasing it the day before Thanksgiving. So they want this to be, like the most eyeballs possible on the Netflix Netflix platform. But like filmmakers well, might reconsider then, signing with Netflix in the future cons- if they want more control over the distribution of their product. I know someone like Steven Soderbergh really wanted to do his own thing, releasing a movie like uh, Logan Lucky. Uh, but that might just be even more ridiculous in the future to do something like that. Well, his argument is that by noon on Friday, he can tell how much money his film is going to make that weekend. And if he can tell that the film is going to bomb or perf- way underperform, he said they should be able to, after a week, put it right on streaming. Because uh-huh. he he just argues that that's more, you know, that makes more sense than trying to keep it in theaters for another two or three weeks. It's just a waste of money. And oh, the yeah. thing I was going to say about Steven Spielberg is that his he was the one supposedly going around telling people don't vote for Roma. It's not a real film because he considers it television. And I mean, I kind I mean, I have this problem of like, you know, on in theory, I kind of agree with him that if it's just streaming. Yeah, I, I think without question, I, I'm very sure that if Roma had been a theater theatrical film and Green Book had been Netflix, Roma would have won Best Picture. I think. No, there's definitely don't no you? doubt about that. Yeah, I just don't understand. You know, it's it, it's like will Spielberg like will if if Spielberg thinks that The Irishman is the best film he saw 
will he vote for it for best picture? Yeah. It'll be interesting, you know. No, I mean, but, he, but if Roma, Netflix, like, like clearly it. is so much better than Green Book. But, like, Spielberg, it's so weird he was so against it just because it was a Netflix movie. And he's really close to Scorsese. They're, like, best friends. Like, will he really hold the same, like, judgment against the Irishman that he did against Roma? That's The Irishman just being well, I... it, it being Scorsese and him being such a film guy, this movie just brings up so many of the issues with the, you know, the streaming versus traditional film thing. And, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the question of, you know, like Roma is one of the most cinematic films that came out last year, but mm-hmm. does the distribution solely make it film versus television? It's like, I think the best thing I've seen all year is Nicholas Winding Refn's 13 hour film or TV series, what of too old to die young. And he said, it's a film that's streaming. He said he shot it and conceived of it as a 13 hour film broken into 10 chapters. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's I I don't have the answers, but I I still I, <laughs> I just I think generally one like, should be less judgmental than someone like Spielberg has shown himself to be. Maybe he'll change his tune, but I mean, if it's yeah, good, like it's, you know, who cares whether so it was many of these on Netflix or otherwise? I mean, s- s- the Marriage Story is Netflix. Uh, Steven Soderbergh has a new dark comedy about the Panama Papers with Meryl Streep, Gary Oldman, Antonio Banderas, James Cromwell, Sharon Stone, and that's going to Netflix. I mean, and The King is Netflix, mm-hmm. the um, film with Timothy Chalamet. I mean, a lot of these big award contenders, this will be one of the most – I mean, last year was pretty interesting, or earlier this year for Roma, mm-hmm. but it's going to be really interesting when you have all these major best – you know, some of the best reviewed films of the year and they're going to Netflix. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Pandora's box has been opened on that thing, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction that, um, Adam Sandler and another Joker performance will be two of the best actor nominees. Uh, that that's possible. You wouldn't think like if you had said, uh, 20 years ago that someone playing the Joker and, Adam Sandler will be up for best actor. No. You know, anyway, that's oh, it's and, and I, I've heard people and I've heard people say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the front runner to win best picture and I could very easily see Tarantino winning best director. It's mm-hmm. way way early and we haven't seen a ton of movies, but that seems like such a perfect. He's never won best director. I could see Tarantino winning, couldn't you? No, I totally think that's the leader in the clubhouse. It's a like like how The Departed yeah was for Scorsese where it's like it's about time and the movie's good enough it might not necessarily be the all-time classic but it's it's a great movie and it really represents his career well I I just so I'm just gonna so hate the Oscar backlash against Joker and Once Upon in Hollywood where everyone's going like oh this movie like the political correctness and like what you know it, like every and there'll be black backlash the backlash and uh-huh. it, it, it gets so tired like no, really I, I just hate the idea that people say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino's Make America Great Again or Make Hollywood Great Again film like that's bullshit <laughs> argument to me that <laughs> it's some right wing fantasy no, yeah for anyway. sure well going past the uh, the squabbles of today we're thinking very, very big picture long term with Richard Lankleiter, who very famously made a movie over 12 years, which resulted in Boyhood, which is one of my favorite movies of this century. But he's going to actually extend the magic act that he pulled last time and make 
a movie that will shoot over the next 20 years. It will be an adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical, Merrily We Roll Along, starring Beanie Feldstein and Ben Platt. And as Jonathan mentioned earlier, I think before we started recording, Richard Linklater will be close to 80 years old when this film wraps production. Do you think there's any chance we actually ever see this movie? Or is this just an announcement people are going to be like, oh, that was weird? Well, I mean, he pulled it off with Boyhood, but it's it's interesting. With Boyhood, he only shot for, I think, 39 days. Mm-hmm. It was just over 12 years, though. So, I mean, as long as, knock on wood, they all have good health, uh, you know, more power to them. I just... I I don't know how like Boyhood was a small budget movie. I don't know how he's going to do a Sondheim musical. Like who's funding this movie? Like you <laughs> oh, would think it would insane. have to be at least like twenty million dollars. Yeah. No, that but, was like um, the whole hook with his production of Boyhood. He's gonna. He was like, "You're gonna forget you're even paying me. I'm gonna be so cheap in the making of this thing." Like he really only shot like two or three days a year for that movie. This is gonna require like setups that like require a week or a month of shooting. This is just going to be an insane production. I'm, like, shocked that someone would, like, commit themselves to this sort of... Like, we have no idea, like, what Beanie Feldstein's career is going to be like in 20 years. Well, you know that she's been cast as Monica Lewinsky in Ryan Murphy's new season of American Crime Story about the Bill Clinton scandal, which is kind of inspired casting, I think. No, it is, yeah. And that seems like she's yeah. about to like blow up as an actress. She was in Booksmart earlier. No pun this intended. Year, who uh, Booksmart was a movie both of us really liked. No, and we really liked. Yeah, Andy no Felton pun intended because she blew Bill Clinton. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you have to yeah. explain the joke, okay, um, it wasn't worth explaining. Okay, um, but the the thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, Boyhood. He only shot. I I wonder if they're gonna shoot like every year, or whether they're gonna shoot and then like five years will go by. Because I don't know the original source. Like it might be like they're no, only gonna point. have it like every. Yeah. So it might be like shooting like five million dollars like four times. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. But um, have the you other seen thing Ben Platt in uh, anything? I know he's really famous for Dear Evan Hansen, but he hasn't been in a whole lot of movies. I think he was in uh, what was that? Uh, Pitch Chris... Perfect films, right? He was in Pitch Perfect, wasn't he? I, I know, know he was Those, in uh, Billy Lynn's of... Long Halftime Walk, which was really really bad. Yeah, um, yeah, I saw that at the New York Film Festival in 3D, the 48 frames per second. I almost fell asleep during the Did movie. Anyone I was puke like, it, like there's the no reason. Frame rate? No, and it's amazing that movie. That movie made like two million dollars in the U.S. Like it's insane how much that bombed. But um, anyway, uh, I uh, th- th- there is a short that Robert Rodriguez directed with John Malkovich a few years ago that's not going to be released for a hundred years. You know wow. that. No, I did not know that. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, the only other really comparison is the newest installment of the Up series is going to be showing at the New York Film Festival, and that's where these uh, group of children were filmed uh, in Britain, like, I don't know, 50 years ago or something. Is that really still years, going on? Yeah, there's like 67 <laughs> Up or so. I don't know what the number wow. is now, but they've done it every seven years. There's been about seven or eight films. Um but anyway, so what two films are we going to review now? We are going to do a double feature of 
minority female directors, which is a very underrepresented category of filmmakers. Uh, as Jonathan, who is teaching a class on female directors, has been pointing out to me recently, my gap in the amount of movies I've seen by female directors. So we are going to start with The Farewell, which is directed by Lulu Wang, who also did Posthumous from 2014. Uh, the movie stars Aquafina who was in Crazy Rich, a- <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians a couple years ago, and Zima. And the film follows a Chinese-American family who, upon learning their grandmother has only a short while left to live, decide not to tell her that she has a terminal illness and schedule a family gathering in China to spend time with her before she dies. It premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival, and opened July 12th in the U.S., has a Metacritic score of 90 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 99, which I was, like, very surprised to see. It was that almost universal of a consensus from critics. But what were your uh, general thoughts on The Farewell, Jonathan? I think it's very lovely and well-observed, and one film that reminded me a lot of uh, it's different from it, but it reminded me quite a bit of Lost in Translation. It's about the kind of cultural clash, but instead of outsiders coming to um, a new city, it's about a woman who's been living in New York City in America for her life, and she's coming to China to visit her family. And the whole conceit of the film, as you said, was that they're keeping the illness, the uh, grandmother's going to die of cancer and they're not telling her because they want her to have her last few weeks be peaceful and not to worry about her demise and um, yeah I th- I th- it's not a laugh out loud funny movie but it's a very wise and um, subtle film there's very little camera movement it's very specific and just it's one of those films that feels very meticulous but it feels very real too it it's very uh, not stylized but you can tell all the shots and all the decisions were very particular but it also feels very natural and that you 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 really feel almost like you're watching her actual family Mm -hmm. um but uh and i think aquafina uh, is really um, I thought she was really funny and crazy rich Asians but in this film I thought she showed a surprising range and this might be a weird comparison but she has a really great face for cinema she has a great no, she stone does. face and yes. she almost reminded me of like an Asian female Buster Keaton like she just has a great face for the screen like she would be great in a if they ever did a, another silent movie like she just has a really cinematic face most of the time she's not smiling or being very emotional um which is part of the character Mm because she she's supposed to be repressing her emotions and she has a really great face for that i think Mm -hmm. she's so yeah now what did you think about it no like you said it's definitely a movie like about the small moments and it was very restrained sort of movie like you said very little camera movement in a movie where very little happens and it's very more concerned with about just like the looks from across the table and things like that, or, you know, putting your hand on somebody's, like, back because you want to, like, you know, they're not going to be here for that much longer and you just want to spend some time with them. Uh, but it was a boring movie, and I didn't expect it to be boring. And maybe that was, like, part of, you know, it was trying to say it's not, like, a movie where a lot happens. But I just, when I was watching it, I wanted to like it more. But, <laughs> I don't know, it just... 
it didn't like capture my attention enough for me to like really love it as a movie. It's one I could like appreciate, and I liked what the director was doing. And like you were saying, Aquafina was like surprisingly impressive as an actress because I'd really only seen like her like rap videos on YouTube and her performance in Crazy Rich Asians, where she's like sort of designed to be super over the top as a character, and she does have a really good face for like being in the cinema she acts to the camera really well um but it's a movie i really wanted to love and i liked it but i really didn't love it because i don't know it was like too small of moments i wish like more happened why all the family's gathering is there's like a wedding between her cousin and like a japanese girl uh who he seems to be dating for real but their like relationship isn't actually quite spelled out it's like but they're getting married and there's, like, a scene that's, like, their wedding reception, which uh, seemed to be, like, the emotional height of the movie. And there was a really good duet between Aquafina and her dad. But, like, I just wish, like, that scene had happened more in the movie. I don't know. Maybe I'm rambling. But do you understand where I'm coming from with that? That I sort of wish more had happened? Well, well how do you feel about Lost in Translation? Because that's a very quiet film that doesn't have much that really happens in it. But And I like Lost in Translation even more than this. Uh-huh. But what do you think of that movie? I thought that worked better because I thought there was, like, a counterweight with the two central performances. If, like, maybe, like, the person who played Aquafina's dad had been a little better, I think. And I guess maybe the grandmother was supposed to be that sort of counterweight. And she was, like, effective as a grandmother, but I don't know. It wasn't, like, an outstanding central lead performance. Like, there are two in Lost in Translation, and I thought there was just one in this movie. I don't know. Maybe that's the difference. I mean, I I went into the film... I mean, two things that you shouldn't... Like, you shouldn't expect it to be at all. It's like the opposite of Crazy Rich Asians, well, even though they yeah, have some for sure, f- yeah. familiarity. It, it's very small, very quiet, very subtle. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just – I thought it was very – I would rather a film be too small than too big, if that makes sense. Oh, that's like, probably I'd rather true. see a small – And it really knew what it yeah. was as a movie, and it knew what it was trying to do. And I don't, like, fault it for anything, but I just didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to enjoy it. You get what I mean by that? I guess I, I was expecting it to be a little more overtly comedic, and it's more just like funny moments and character quirks and 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 the quiet little moments. It's not so joke driven, which is fine. Uh-huh. But I kind of was. Um, I don't know. My expectations were that it would be a little bit more. Um, comedic but you you had some thoughts about the ending which is even though it's based on a true story the ending is you know spoiler alert if you haven't seen it what do you feel about the ending well at the ending we find out that it's based on a true story and that the grandmother that it's based on has not died and is in fact living to this day six years after her family sort of pulled the like you're actually dying but we're not going to tell you act and I don't know, because the movie was so much like about these small moments and cherishing time with someone who doesn't have much time left, I thought that sort of part of the theme was undercut by the fact that Grandmother is still alive, and actually you do have more time with her, and <laughs> you didn't need to appreciate those times you had left. I don't know, I thought it would have been more effective if she died, and if they didn't reveal to us at the end that she did in fact survive. 
and we just didn't find that out. And because, especially because the last shot of the movie is like very somber, and it's like you're leaving your grandmother for what seems like the last time, and it's a bittersweet moment. And I don't know. I thought it was very much undercut by the revelation that she's been alive for six years, and the girl has, you know, seen her a lot of times. Which is, like, a a good and happy thing, and maybe that makes me an evil person, but it made the movie a little less impactful for me. Well, you don't want an actual human to die, but for the the sake of the film, like, the... Well, I mean, you don't think that the family... I mean... I think that she legitimately was, you know, that she they thought she was going to die in like a few weeks. Like, I think that's real in that she's um, miraculously has lived this long. Right. Yes. I mean, you're not saying that you think they've lied to her that she was. No, you know. no, 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 yeah, no. I think but just that, like the, yeah. what the movie was trying to say was kind of undercut by the fact that the grandmother is still alive. Just because so much of the movie was about the grief process and. And, you know, making the moments count with the people while they're still here. And I guess maybe that, that theme is only reinforced by the fact that they appreciate those moments and yeah. she is still alive. But I don't I don't know. Yeah. But just when I was walking out of the theater, I was like, I felt kind of cheated that the grandmother didn't die. No, I really liked it. And like, I, I like the last shot of the bird. So I think that's very effective. But yes. I also think it's like a twist. I mean, not like a Shyamalan twist, really, but just it's it's just it, it adds a new wrinkle to the film. Yes, and I was just talking to you uh, before that the inner uh, the director, Lulu Wang, uh, just uh, side trivia. You know that she's uh, partners with Barry Jenkins, who did Moonlight. Mm hmm. I didn't actually. Uh, anyway, um, that's a very talented uh, couple. Well, her, uh, yes, um, but she, uh, she, her grandmother knows that a film has been made, that her daughter has done her first feature film, and that she, like, they're still keeping up, like, basically lying to her that you know, oh, they're making a movie. It's like based partially on our family, but they're not letting her know that this film is like basically about us lying to you this whole time i mean it is one of the thing that's intriguing to me about the film is that it's interesting how different families react to death and sickness because for example i have um my father had a grandparent die and his parents didn't tell him for like a week because he was during it was during finals and they told him a week later and they said decided just you know wait a week and tell you and he was like how did you and like my mom's side of the family would be the type that was like constantly calling and Uh knowing every up-to-date moment so it's just interesting how different people and definitely cultures react to death and grieving and no and that's what it was it was like sort of a like sociological piece of a movie like the main sort of thrust of the movie was uh just the like sociological phenomenon of chinese families not telling their elderly parents that they're going to die which is like a very you know it's not something that happens a lot in western societies so just a lot of the movie was just like looking at Chinese society F- from someone who is Chinese from Aquafina's perspective, like she was born in China, but has lived in the U.S. for most of her life. And that aspect of the movie I found more effective than <laughs> especially because the end undercutting the like being spending time with your family while they're still alive. The like fish out of the water element with Aquafina was the part that I found most effective. And my main takeaway from the movie was just her as an acting talent and just extending herself beyond what I'd seen her do before and being really impressed and being interested to see what she does in the future. And someone like her, 
would not have been giving lead roles, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. She would have forever been like the best friend or something like that in a movie. So it's very refreshing to see someone like her being given starring roles. Right. I was going to say an interesting companion piece with this film that came out earlier this year at premiered at Cannes. That sounds very interesting. Werner Herzog has a film called family romance LLC. And this is a film um, that's about uh, families that hire people to play their family members after they die to help grieve over their loss. And he went and took his own money and filmed this film. And I don't know, that premise sounds really intriguing. Like no one would make this movie, but um, it's just another Asian uh, culture being different and like family, uh, this kind of lie that's going on or this kind of charade. So Family Romance LLC. uh, That would be a super uh, bizarre uh, double feature. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, Anyway, uh, do you want to set up the second film we're reviewing? The second movie of the female minority director double feature we are doing is Blinded by the Light, uh, which is directed by Gurinder Chadha, who also did Bend It Like Beckham uh, at the beginning of this century, and then Bride and Prejudice was a follow-up to that. And she hasn't made a lot of other high-profile movies since then, uh, so this is her biggest release in some time. It is starring Vivek Kalra, Haley Atwell, and Rob Ryden. It is set in the town of Luton in 1987, Margaret Thatcher-era Britain. The film is about Javed, a British-Pakistani Muslim teenager whose life has changed after he discovers the music of Bruce Springsteen. It premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival and was released wide August 16th, a Metacritic score of 71 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88. A little bit lower than The Farewell, but still pretty positive. Um, This is a movie that uh, I had seen previews for and was really excited by, and it is sort of like an from-the-surface, more uplifting, more entertaining-sounding movie than The Farewell was. Uh, How did you react to it? I don't know music nearly as well as I know film. So my knowledge of Bruce Springsteen is basically, didn't he do a song at the end of Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler? And didn't he do something that's like born in the USA or something like that? Like I virtually know nothing about Bruce Springsteen. I don't dislike him. I just don't have a knowledge. And um, I thought the previews looked a little cheesy a little bit, but I had a big grin a big smile on my face for the nearly two hour running time it's such a lovely big hearted genuine film that like you can go into it with like oh this is cheesy or this is manipulative Mm -hmm. but if you let it go and and you just go with the film i i just thought it was a really crowd-pleasing film that also has sincere like moving moments and it's political too yes so it, it hit on a lot of different things yeah, it was like surprisingly um, politically about... relevant, uh, considering like uh, especially Thatcherite Britain in 1987. There was a lot of nationalist tendencies going around and a lot of bullying of immigrants, um, which were particularly relevant to today. And just the fact that it was a Pakistani immigrant is the main character, and he was like very, you know, he's. Like an almost like a John Cusack teenage lead performance, like just like a sort of everyman who's very sensitive 
and curious and very easy to get behind um, and positioned just, uh, you know, everyday Britain and being a Pakistani. Uh, but so you're someone who didn't know anything about Bruce Springsteen, really, because I came into this being a really huge Bruce Springsteen fan. How did because that's a really central premise of the movie is once being sort of exposed to Bruce Springsteen, Javid starts expressing himself through his writing and like, you know, living out things that he would only think of before, uh, like, you know, in terms of approaching women and stuff like that. So I don't know, what did just, like, the effect of the music of Bruce Springsteen have on you with this movie? Because it's such an important element of it. Well, like, it did you want to listen to about... Springsteen afterwards, or have you not listened to a song since? <laughs> well, I mean, w- would you say he's he's similar to Bob Dylan, right? Yes, in terms of, like, trying to tell the story of, like, ordinary Americans and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. As far as, like, one of the great American songwriters is concerned. Well, I mean, it's similar to how uh, when I saw Rocket Man, I was like, yeah, I don't know his... I don't don't have a problem with music. I just don't (laughs) know it very well. And there are certain people... Like, Bob Dylan is my favorite, and I have, like, a personal connection to his music. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I I wasn't sure sometimes whether this was a famous Bruce Springsteen song or this was the kid writing his poetry. But, oh, really? You know, it was effective. Yeah, I mean, there were times where, like, the characters that was in the one film, of like, they the more effective parts of the movie is, like, there's a scene where, like, a storm is happening outside of his house and he's listening to uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town, the album by Bruce Springsteen for the first time. And, like, the lyrics of the songs are, like, illuminated on the sides of buildings and stuff like that because they're so affecting to him personally and are expressing thoughts that he has been feeling but has been unable to articulate and is, like, so moved that someone has is saying stuff that he's feeling. That's, like, that's funny that, like, you didn't know which ones were Bruce Springsteen songs and which ones weren't. Well, I knew that one was. <laughs> I, I knew that one was, but, yeah. I mean, I I know this might like horrify people, but like I don't know, like I've never had with music really the like the way it happens to him in the film. Like movies have done that to me, but I've never like listened to an album and been like, this speaks to me so deeply. I'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, this is like really good, <laughs> but I, I just like movies do that to me, not music. Like I enjoy music, but no, no music, no album, no artist has like stirred my soul in the way that it does to the character in this film, but I understand it and I could relate to it mm-hmm. and I completely uh, found it uh, emotionally effective. But yeah, like as like a comedy, like did, I mean, you were saying you enjoyed it a lot before. Um, did you think it was like over the top points or did you like enjoy most of like uh, the teen sort of movie aspects of this? Yeah. I mean, it, I, it's a movie that you can kind of grudgingly go, Oh, this is, you know, kind of over the top or this is kind of big, but it, but like there's a scene where he like sings, uh, born to run or was it thunder road? Like to the girl he has a crush on in the middle of like a public square and something like you'd see from like a Richard Curtis movie, which like someone like me, I'm like a sucker for something like that, but I could easily see people like rolling their eyes and being too cool for it. Yeah, I mean, f- there's some films that you just 
like you you could be critical and go oh this is manipulative oh this is too broad this is too this this is too that but but the emotions are so sincere i think and the performers are so good mm-hmm. that even if you could critique the movie like it just works it fundamentally just works and i think that like i said part of the power of the film is even though it does have these kind of um broad comedic moments or these kind of theatrical moments there is a real emotional uh weight to the film and and like i said it gets political and i mean i think one of the most pointed scenes in the film is uh there's a billboard of margaret thatcher and she looks like she's kind of giving a nazi salute but yeah, no, I it just, was uh, it was definitely a movie anyway, made yeah, by I, someone who has lived through the past few years, which it is. I like seeing uh, like historical movies where you know we're we're we are shown that things have happened like this before, and you know that you know people fought it then, and people should continue to be against it now. But one of the like central relationships in the movie was Javed and his dad, uh, who was like a Pakistani uh, British immigrant. Um, and just their relationship in the movie. How did you think, just like the Vivek Kaura, who I hadn't seen in anything, uh, who plays Javid in this movie, how do you think he just was as a dramatic actor? And this is the first time I've seen him. I imagine this is the first time you've seen him in a movie. Well, the thing that is impactful about it is that you understand where he's coming from. Like he's logical. Like you, like even though you understand and you relate to the young character, everything he's saying, even if he can be gruff, like, Uh like he's doing it to protect his family and he wants his son and the rest of his family to have money, to have security. Like you understand where he's come from. And he kind of went through similar situations, you know, leaving his home country. So it's one of those things where it's, it's more effective because even though, I mean, he's not really a villain, but he's up against the main character throughout the film quite often. But what his reasons are uh, are sound and like you it's not just him being completely like uh uh, an obnoxious parent who's just not letting their kid do anything like you understand where he's coming from now that was what i thought they handled that really really well because that's something that comes across in a lot of movies about especially protagonists in their teenage years where like the dad can just seem like he's the worst and you know he doesn't want me to do anything but there was a really nice reconciliation at the end of the movie um and it's based on a true story and the person who it's based on actually co-wrote the screenplay so especially in like the moments between the father and the son you could really tell uh just how emotional it would have been for the guy writing it uh and just how tenderly it comes across in the screen. And, and like you were saying, it's a movie that just works. I think a lot of that has to do with just the enthusiasm between everyone in it. Like, just... Especially the lead actor. Just, like, they seem so, like, committed to what they're doing. And that just comes across in every moment of the movie. Yeah. I, I'm not even sure how old the actual actor is. No. Because <laughs> it's weird. It's like... He's in college in the film, right? Uh, he's it, in like high school. Like... It's just like the the British call it college, but it's like sophomore to senior year of high school is sort of the range he's supposed to be in. Right. So he's like, you know, 18 or younger in the yeah. film, his character. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just sometimes I was like, wait, what? Like, where is he going to school? Like, what is this? But uh, yeah, I, 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 I had never seen any of the director's other films. Have had you seen, seen any of like her Beckham. films? Oh yeah, I've seen that one. Uh, that was just yeah. like such a huge movie at the beginning of uh, the two thousands. Like that was Kieran Knightley. It was the first time I saw her anything. Also deals with uh, British, Pakistani. They might be Indian. But a sort of immigrant family and assimilating into British culture touches on similar themes, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a sucker for a whole lot of stuff set in the past in Britain, so I was gonna be like this movie before I even saw it. But I was just pleasantly surprised by how like into it I was while I was watching it, um, and I liked both the movies we're talking about. Yeah. I was a little disappointed. I didn't enjoy the farewell. But I really, really enjoyed Blinded by the Light. Like, that was a movie I was into, like, the whole time. And just the enthusiasm of the performers and, like, the filmmakers, just, like, I was just sucked in, like, from the first moment of it. Even though it's not in the genre, really, I think that Blinded by the Light is certainly better than Bohemian Rhapsody and even better than Rocket Man, would you say? Yes, especially because those movies were, like, so much about the suffering artist. I like seeing the suffering fan, because that's something that's much more easy to relate to, and just how what art means to, you know, the normal person. Because, like, how could I ever relate to the life of Freddie Mercury or Elton John? But, you know, a teenager in, you know, the suburbs being affected by a work of art he had never been exposed to before... And it, you know, having a huge effect on him is something like I imagine anybody who sees this movie could relate to. So a movie about the power of an artist's music, I thought it was much more effective than either of those movies could be. And I've heard a number of critics and other artists uh, say that the more specific you make a story, the more detailed and you know intricate the characters are in their lives the in a weird way the more broadly appealing it is like if you make something you know honest and you know even if you aren't a pakistani person growing up in england in the 80s who fell in love with bruce springsteen like the fact that it is so rich in its look look into this world and this you know this situation it makes it more broadly appealing because you try to make something like oh you try to make something appeal to everyone it often feels false and like you're trying to just you know you know you're just being too broad so i i think that it does a very good job of showing the culture clash so both films are uh, also about culture clash mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i just i love that someone like you who's like almost never even listened to bruce springsteen can so like understand where the the lead character is coming from by just being you know, exposed to something that just changes the way they think about the world. <laughs> Anything else? Well, uh, what, well, I was going to say every every film I'm going to show on my female director's class, I ask the questions, can you tell this film is directed by a woman? Does it make a difference that it's directed by a woman? And how would the film be different if it were directed by a man? I don't think Blinded by the Light specifically really has anything like overtly like i see go oh well that a woman directed that because you know the main character is male he has a girlfriend and the females are interesting and strong and complex but uh i don't think blinded by the light seems so particularly like female centric or a female perspective no i don't think so either i guess maybe if a man had directed it 
Maybe there's a scene with his little sister going to, like, a day party. Um, and maybe, like, a man who lived in a similar experience wouldn't have known about something like that. And that scene wouldn't have been in the movie. But other than that, no. It was just, you know, the best parts about the best directors, you know, just finding the intimate moments and finding specific things that can be blown up and anyone can relate to. So, no, nothing particular to a female, just, you know, all-around good filmmaking, uh, which I feel similar to The Farewell. I don't really think there's anything, uh, you know, aside from the fact that the protagonist was a female, but, you know, we've seen movies with female protagonists directed by men before. I don't know, maybe there was just... They were slower paced, maybe, than a movie by a man might have been. And maybe if The Farewell had been made by a man, it would have been a little more overtly comic. Do you think that might be fair? I well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think... Well, you're not saying that Blinded by the Light is, like, slower. Like, that's pretty no, no, buoyant no, and, like, really, no. snappy. Yeah. But the Farewell... Yeah, I, I just think the Farewell is... Um, it's very like I, I don't want like I don't want it to sound like in a racist way that the movie's wise like because it's Asian but like the <laughs> film is just it's very it, it's I like I, I think that's a fair word to use it's a no it, it seems it's like a, a movie wise that was made like, by like an elderly you know what I'm saying? person no I do know what you're saying like the attention span of the movie was not the attention span of a younger person um, maybe that's why I had like, trouble watching it it's not, I won't be like, you know, I won't be afraid to admit I checked my phone like several times during the movie because it was just that slow. And I was watching it in a movie theater. In the theater? <laughs> yes. Shameful. Oh, shameful. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, and also I just want to make clear that when we were talking about her face, we're not like saying, oh, the, her looks. We're just saying like we're complimenting that she just has a very cinematic face. We're not saying like, oh, she's hot or that, you know, we're we're just saying that she has a very – express like she no, just has like, a great there's, face there's for times cinema. where people are saying like because she's an american and the rest of the family is chinese that they're better at hiding their emotions than the american is and she like comes out of the bathroom with like this hangdog expression and everyone like looks at her and like what's wrong and it was just really expertly acted uh so yeah like i mean i really can't wait to see what aquafina does in the future that was my sort of main takeaway from the farewell was I was very impressed by her as an actress. Well, um, I do think that, uh, yeah, it's always interesting. Like you want to see them, you know, she's working with a really interesting director, uh, Lulu Wang, but it would be like, what, what living director would you love to see? Like give her a showcase? Like, uh, I don't know. I is think there a director you would, it might be a sort of off the wall pick, but I feel like she'd be a good, maybe not a lead character, but a good supporting character in a David Fincher movie. Yeah, like I could see her like in a seven type movie. It's like a well, I don't know. Like, yeah, or, or even I mean, she, like that might be stretching her acting a bit, but I'd like to see her as like the lead in God Girl or that sort of character. Yeah, um, I was just, I don't know why this popped into my head, but um, I think she'd be really good in a Todd Solon's film, like very just dry. I think Aquafina would be really good in just this kind of like a dry comedy, which The Farewell is. To, you know, it's it's a very like measured, quiet. Uh, movie, yeah, but I, I, I thought both of them were very well made. Blinded by the Light is more like overtly just fun, but I think The Farewell is a very well made movie. We've got right. very good stuff coming out in the near future. Ad Astra, which we mentioned earlier in the episode, will premiere in a couple weeks, and It Chapter Two, 
uh, is going to come out this weekend, which I know Jonathan is a little bit maybe sour on. <laughs> but I'm expecting good I haven't seen the first one. Oh my god, you got to see the first one. I want to read the 1,100-page novel first, and that's why I haven't seen the films. Uh, but yeah, I I did see two horror films recently, Ready or Not, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Maybe we'll talk about them in the future. But uh, yeah, there's always things to see, and definitely when it starts uh, with the film festival films coming out, there'll be a lot to talk about. There's so much I'm excited about. Yes, brainless summer movie season has ended. Award season is here. Thank you for listening, uh, and we'll be back with y'all next time. Messages keep getting clearer. Radio's on, and I'm moving around my place. I check my look in the mirror. Wanna change my clothes, my hair, my face, and I ain't getting nowhere. I'm just living in a dump like this. There's something happening somewhere. Baby, I just know it is. You can't.